The following audio is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that this recording will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. really look very far to see examples of, of people uh, suffering in our world. We've just been praying, particularly for the people who are going through uh, you know, quite a difficult time, challenging times in their lives right now. You know, you, uh, if you look, turn on a TV, if you uh, look at a newspaper, if you even, you know, sort of even you know, pull up the uh, you know, computer or go on Facebook and stuff and things like that, you'll see uh, straight away examples of sometimes incredible suffering that people are going, are going through. I mean, for many of us, we don't even have to look that far, do we? We don't even just have to look at our own life to, to see that kind of, uh, of suffering that, uh, that, is, that, is, that is there for us. I mean, many of us know that suffering only too well, don't we? We, uh, we know that, uh, that, 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 uh, that, um, that burden and that, that pain and that hardship and that trial uh, in our lives. And of course, now, when it comes to suffering, the question is that is associated with suffering so much is the question why. You know, questions like why me, why now, now why, why this. And for the Christian, we can also probably you know add to that the question why God, why God. Probably the greatest story of a human suffering. That we know it comes to us from the Bible. And we find it in this book of God that we're going to be looking at over these next six weeks. So during this time, we're going to be exploring this, this subject of human suffering as it relates to God and His purposes. We're going to come, to, we're going to come face to face with a man who will experience, probably, or who experiences some of the most intense human suffering imaginable. We're going to see this man Job at his best, and we're going to see him at his worst. We're going to be transported into the very throne room of God and listen in on, on some very unsettling and probably for some of us some disturbing and even scary conversations that God has with this, this one who is identified as the Satan, or who we call might refer to as Satan. Exert our adversary or accuser, which is what that name means. We're going to sit with Job in his misery as he wrestles with, with you know, with the tragedies that have befallen him, but also as he laments the silence of God and the, and the fact that, that the presence of God just seems to be so far away from him that he wonders where God is in the midst of his suffering. We're going to hear the counsel of, of Job's so-called friends or counselors and the debate that they're going to have with Job about why he is suffering. And we're going to ultimately listen in on God as God finally speaks and sets the record straight towards the end of the book. And as we do this, as we, as we journey through this particular book over these next six weeks, we're hopefully going to be challenged on how we ourselves might approach or view this subject of suffering, particularly when it's our own suffering. And we're going to look at it in terms of what God might be saying to us in the midst of suffering. 
let's try again and let's start doing the great things with them, shall we? Father, again, we just ask that, uh, that you might be asking for the Lord Holy Spirit. Lord, may the money and the meditation of the glory of God be pleasing and acceptable to you in our day and our work and our community. Making a joke, chapter one. And we're going to read the first one of five verses. So there was a man in the land of Ur, whose name was John. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed seven thousand sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would stand and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. That Job did continually. The book opens with the word, There was a man. There was a man. In other words, this is a story of a real human being. It's not some kind of mythological fairy tale, but this is a story of a man called Job who lives in this, this region called Ur, which we might uh, know today as modern-day Jordan. It's that, that land east of, of Israel, over the other side of the Jordan River, uh, a place which uh, the Bible sometimes refers to as the place of uh, the land of Edom. There Job lives. And he probably lived around the time of, of Abraham. We're not particularly, you know, 100% sure of that, but probably around, around about that time. Maybe just a little bit before, maybe, or perhaps just a little bit after Abraham. And the writer goes on to tell us a little bit about this particular man, Job, in, in chapter 1 and verse 1. He says that Job was a godly man. The writer says he was a man who was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, this is something which we need to sort of just uh, you know, uh, um, connect in with here because it's a really important thing. Because this particular aspect of Job's character is just quite foundational to this whole book. In fact, these words about Job are repeated three times just in these opening two chapters. Once from the, from the writer, but twice we'll hear them from the mouth of God himself. And in this way, God is held up, if you like, as the supreme example of a man who has got this deep reverence and love for God. You see it not only you know, in, in, in uh, his character, but you see it working out in practice in the way that he believes. We also told in verses 2 and 3 that Job lived an incredibly blessed life. He had a large family, seven sons and three daughters. In that particular day, seven sons was considered to be 
uh, that was the, 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 the best that you could possibly hope for. Seven sons and three daughters. The family of Cain again sort of signals completeness or fullness. We're told that he had many herds of, of sheep and camels and oxen and, and, and donkeys. And he had many servants. All indicated, particularly in that culture, of great wealth and prosperity. Job was an incredibly wealthy and prosperous man in all in, in, in every way possible. In fact, the writer refers to Job as the greatest of all the men of the East. The message seen here you know, in this that Job is experiencing God's favor. God, God incredibly you know, has, 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 has abundantly blessed Job. And uh, we, 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 we need to sort of associate that with Job's godliness. This um, godliness of Job is worked out, again, as I said, in encompassing verses 4 and 5 of, of, of Job chapter 1. And here Job is concerned for two things. Firstly, he's concerned for God's glory. He's concerned that his kids may have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. The kids, as we're told, that the guys would come together on, 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 on each of their days. We're probably looking at it like a, their birthday, if you like. The, uh, the men would come and they would celebrate one another's birthday. And at those birthdays, they'd invite their sisters to come along and be a part of the celebration. And there would be eating and drinking. In other words, there would be great feasting that went on. And Job's concern was that, you know, in the midst of this, that the, the, the Job's kids may have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Now, that's not to say that, you know, what was going on in the revelry was, was sinful in any kind of way. But, you know, sometimes, you know, when, we, when, we, when life is going really, really well for us, when we're incredibly blessed in our lives, we've got so much in terms of material possessions and we get to, to live the good life, we can sometimes, in the midst of that, very quickly forget God, can't we? Very quickly forget God. And I think this may be part of the reason why Job, you know, is saying, you know, that maybe these kids have, have instead thought that, you know, we, we're doing okay, we don't need God. And so Job is concerned that his kids may have seen themselves God in their hearts. He's also concerned for his kids' spiritual welfare. He didn't want them to come under God's judgment. And so Job offers sacrifices for each of his kids. And in this we see, you know, Job is the model of a true and godly family. You know, dads being fathers day to day, you know, we can look to Job here as an example of what it means for, you know, what it should mean for us, a, a great model of what it means to be a godly father. You know, to have that concern for our children that we try to, to raise them up in the ways of God and, and try to help them to see how important the relationship with God is and how we need to continue to, to, to lean into God and, and hang on to Him, to him and, and worship Him and make Him the center of our life. Now, Job, as we look at him here in this in these opening verses, Job is the best of the best in both his character and his position. He's a remarkable man who has everything going for him. He was considered so favored by God that he would have been the last person that people would have expected to see suffer in his life. You know what, Michael? Why is that? You know, for many of us, and I think you know, for a vast majority of us, We've kind of got this in-depth framework, if you like, in our minds of how we process and think about suffering, how we understand it. 
It's often based on a, a retributive kind of framework. In other words, a, a reward and punishment kind of framework. So if we, if we do good, then we can expect good in our lives. And if we do bad, then we can expect bad in our lives. That's how we kind of, so we kind of operate as human beings. In fact, you know, as Christians, we do the same. I mean, how many of us think that by trying to live a life that is, that is pleasing to God, you know, if our, if our good certainly outweighs our bad, or, you know, we start time started, say, with a, with a quiet time, if I make sacrifices in doing good work for God and for, for His people and for His kingdom, then, you know, we, we, we think in our minds that we can generally expect them that things will go pretty well for us. You know, that God will bless us, that He'll reward us. And in living this way, we may think or even hope that we'll be protected from really significant harm in our lives. Isn't that the way we sometimes think? It is, isn't it? It's the reality. But the fact really is that for many of us, it's not, uh, you know, at one time or another, we're all going to undergo extreme suffering and extreme trouble in our lives. We can't get away from it. It will impact us, whether it, it already has done or whether it hasn't. It will, at some point in our lives, each and every one of us will go through incredible times of, of suffering and hardship and trauma. And the question will arise then, how are we to make uh, is to make sense of our suffering in light of, 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 of God and of His goodness and of His love and of His kindness and His gracious and mercy. The Bible tells us that you know, God often operates in ways that we struggle to understand. Some of you might be familiar with the, uh, those, the verses in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 that says this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God works in ways which we can struggle to understand at times. And we're going to see this now in the next few verses, in verses 6 through to 12. Read them with me. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan went to the Lord and said, Does God fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? He has blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to his And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now I'm going to choose that these verses here certainly caused me a little bit to, to recoil and stop and hide. 
this conversation that God and Satan have here, there in God's heavenly throne room. Here we see Satan come before God in his divine counsel, and God himself points out to Satan just how wonderful an example of a godly man God is. So it says, have you considered my servant God? I don't know about you, but it's as though God is putting Job right in the middle of Satan's crosshairs. He's painting this massive big target on Job's back. One commentator puts it, it's like the owner of a jewelry store saying to a thief who's come in to rob him, oh, by the way, have you, have you seen this beautiful, lovely big diamond I've got in my front window? That's the kind of, you know, sort of uh, image we get here, isn't it? And it's quite it can be a little bit disturbing, a little bit unnerving for us. God is, is holding up Job here as the supreme example of a righteous and godly man. But Satan's not buying it. He's not buying it at all. In fact, he suggests to God that the only reason that Job fears and worships God is because he, Job knows what side his bread is buttered on. In other words, he knows that you know, if he continues to, to please God, then he's going to continue to get all this great blessing from God. And so for Job, he's only in it for what he can get out of it. That's what Satan's saying here. Satan goes on to say that, you know, you take away all that he has, and Job will certainly curse you to your face, God. In fact, here's the crux of the matter. Here's the issue that is really exposed here in this particular passage, but it is actually the entire book of Job that's different. Is God worthy of man's worship and devotion? Simply because he is God? Or is, his, is God's worth and glory dependent upon the way he treats mankind and governs the universe? That's what this phrase is about. Is God truly worthy of devotion and worship because he alone is God, regardless, despite nothing else? Or is God only really worthy of our worship, deserving of our worship because of what he gives us and because of the way in which we can? So even though the events that are going to unfold here in this book center on the person of Job, we're going to see that it's what, what the issue really is here is the issue of God's glory and his divine sovereignty. That is the key issue that's exposed here in this book. And for this reason, God allows Satan to stretch out his hands towards all that Job has. But he's not to harm Job and his precious. God sets the boundaries. And straight away we need to realize that. That here we're not talking about God and Satan as equals. You know, sometimes, you know, in, in, you know, human beings sort of kind of think that, that God is the good force in the world and Satan's the evil force in the world and, and they're, they're equal, you know, in their power and abilities and that sort of stuff. That's not the case. We find here very clearly that it is God who is the one who sets the, the, the limits or the boundaries. He is the one with absolute authority and even Satan himself must obey God. And what follows through this book, and particularly in these opening chapters here, 
sorry, is, is, is a series of, of human tragedies on a scale that is quite extraordinary in their intensity. We're going to see that Job is, is afflicted with a level of suffering that is unimaginable to us. And which I believe would, would crush most of us if we were to have to endure what he goes through. Because not only did, did Job lose, lose his wealth, but he must also bear the heartbreaking news and burden of, of, of the death of all ten of his children. Every single one of them. In one hit, in a split of a second. Gone. It's a level of suffering that is beyond our comprehension of it. And we can't lose sight of that in this. We must not lose sight of the incredible suffering that Job will experience, or is it going to experience here in this book, in his life. You know, it's so easy as we read through the words, as we read through the story here, to just gloss over this stuff. But we're talking about a real human being. We're talking about real, real tragedies in this person's life. We see Job's grief, you know, having been confronted with such circumstances, Job physically demonstrates the anguish of his heart when he tears his robe, when he shaves his head as a symbol of mourning in verse 20. You know, uh, we've skipped over all the, you know, what happens in his life there, but we're skipping down to, to verse 20 of chapter 1. But I, I want you to take time this week to go through and read chapter 1 and 2 and read through these tragedies that have come upon this man Job and try to come to grips with the enormity of what this man will experience. We're told in verse 20 that it says that when Job arose and tore his robe, he shaved his head and he falls to the ground. Some might say it's because of you know such a tragedy has literally forced him to his knees. But the emotional toll was so overwhelming that it literally takes all his strength away in that you're not, not even to stand at that, at that, at that point. But like, that's not what's mentioned. It's not the picture we should see of Job as broken and rejected, is it? Because it goes on to say, no, he falls to the ground, prostrate. In other words, face down in the ground, arms outstretched, and Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What an incredible act of faith and confidence in God. Satan has done his best to make Job curse God and instead God's glory is put on wonderful display in the life of the king. 
need to emphasize in the closing verse of the chapter where it says, in all this, God did not sin or charge God in all Going in chapter 2, Satan argues that Job will indeed curse God if he has to endure physical suffering in his own body. He says, You know, Lord, well, you might have taken that stuff away from him, but you know what? I think, you know, Job can cope with that. But you start hitting him where it really, really hurts, you know, when the suffering starts to become, you know, there in his own body, that, Lord, that's when Job will curse you to the Job is then afflicted by Satan with this, this terrible physical disease that leaves him in absolute agony and torment. We read, you know, Job is covered from the top of his head, from the crown of his head, to the very soles of his feet with this, this, this open, blistering, puffy sores that are, that are itchy, that are burning, that are just driving him absolutely mad. Has anyone ever had like a, a heat rash or an itch that you just drive insane. These, these wounds that burst out all over Job's body and he's having to scrape them with his broken piece of pottery. Job has got this settled faith and trust and hope in 
Satan will be shown. Despite Satan's relentless attack, we're told that Job did not sin with his mouth. In other words, he maintained that trust and love and worship of God. And folks, for us really to realize that Satan will use this story of tragedy and hardship against us as well in our lives. He will. He will seek to use this specific strategy against us in our lives where he brings hardship and struggle and suffering. And he wants us to reject God. He wants us to just, he wants to destroy our faith in God by doing this. But like Job, even when we don't understand the circumstances or even when we, we feel completely overwhelmed by them, we will always have a choice to choose whether or not we will trust God or not. Will we trust God in this time? And some time to I just want to point out to us, touch some things which you know, we need to keep in mind when, when this suffering does come upon us in our lives. Just a few things. And the first is this that God doesn't just allow suffering. In other words, He just doesn't allow Satan just to go and do, you know, whatever. And, and, and that sort of thing. But you know, that, 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 that the suffering that we go through is somehow and what we need to understand too is that sometimes it is God's direct and intense purpose for us to suffer. Did you get that? That sometimes God in His divine plans and purposes has a specific intent for you to suffer in your life. Notice again, here, you notice here in this passage it was a God's instigation that Job is brought to Satan's attention. Twice God says, Have you considered my servant Job? Debate starts to be acted out by Job and his friends. 
we go through this series, we need to understand, though, that God's wisdom can be trusted because God is good. God's character. Psalm 25 and verse 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 110 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love and good forever. Psalm 119 verse 68 says about God, You are good and you do good. Another thing we need to understand here is that, is that God does not delight in our suffering. Even though God will sometimes bring suffering into our lives, God does not, you know, take delight in our suffering. God has 
Thanks for listening to this audio from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.